Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Brew Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Sate. And I'm Jim. Jim, you sounding good, buddy. How you feeling today? Much appreciated. Better. I mean, uh, I, the healing thing is funny. Like, I really had some big worries about it. Um, the actual healing part of this whole tonsillectomy process is done. What I'm getting used to now is how differently the topography of my actual throat is. Mm-hmm. Like, there's two big chunks of tissue that are missing, so I kind of have to... Like, speaking is like riding a bike, but I'm, I'm finding that, like, I got my first band rehearsal back tonight after taking a couple weeks off to heal up and the muscle memory of singing is a little different we were kind of chatting a little bit in the run-up here and some of the like little vocal tricks i do to kind of emulate some of these 90s grunge singers like getting that rattly baritone that kind of gravelly scratch thing going on Uh, a lot of the tissue i used to kind of rattle against on the inside of my stupid big mouth to make those sounds is not there anymore oh my so i have to kind of retrain my throat and my voice a little bit to um, to emulate those little tricks, uh, even though there's like a, a whole chunk of my fucking mouth that's missing, which is a weird thing to say. But um, between that and the fact that there's just more room in there for the air to move around, it's changing things a little bit. So much extra space in our room to do activities. And now more than ever, I'm starting to understand uh, why, like people over the years have always said, but why didn't Freddie Mercury ever get his teeth fixed? Because he's so self-conscious about how, how kind of odd his teeth were. But... Uh, he was concerned that any kind of oral surgery would change the character of his voice, and that was more important to him. So I'm not saying I regret doing this, because if it keeps the strep at bay, it'll have been worth it. But it is one of those things I'm going to have to learn to, to build in some workarounds for. How about you? How you doing? Well, I don't have to train my throat. Giggity, giggity, giggity. So, I mean, yeah. I'm all right. Well, you know. Good, good. That's nasty. That is nasty. <laughs> Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, not a whole lot to complain about for a change. That's good. <laughs> uh, especially as, I don't know if you caught this in the last episode, I found a sound clip that I really love that is just, it's all about, you know, fucking with myself as I edit this program. And uh, there's a comedian, uh, Rachel Feinstein, and she's absolutely hilarious. And she I goes off. Feinstein. She goes off on this like 10 minute rant about social media and Facebook and. She talks about this guy that uh, uh, she used to work with at like a pizza joint when she was like 16 or 15, 16. And the only reason she keeps him on her Facebook is because of his stupid fucking posts. Um, just like announcing to the world things like, oh, we need to put an end to genocide. Really? Okay. Thanks for your stunning hot take on genocide, bud. Yeah. But, That's a uh, bold stance, Cotton. Let's see how that works out for you. Right. So she wakes up, she says she wakes up every morning in like this hate cycle of needing to get onto Facebook. And then she's like, what the fuck is it now, Kevin? And so uh, I've decided to use that sound effect (laughs) every time I get on my bullshit again. So because believe it or not, I will be on some bullshit pretty much all the time. That's just how I am. It's just going to happen. You know, I've noticed a a trend and this. This has come up a lot on TikTok, which I know you and I are both very reluctant fans of. I try to get to a stage in my life where I don't where I don't have guilty pleasures. I just have the regular kinds. I don't apologize for my taste anymore when it right. comes to music, entertainment, video games, that kind of thing. But I do still have a certain amount of shame that revolves around like how much time I spend on TikTok. It is a time suck. It's a time waster. It's been specifically engineered to have an incredibly effective algorithm and to be really, really addictive. But um, you know this idea that like. Uh, yeah, it's just, I don't want to be one of these old people that just spends a lot of time bitching that things aren't the way they used to be. Well, back in my day, mm-hmm, 
you know, because especially like my job, I, I spent a lot of time as a kid being real smug, thinking, you know, looking around at automation replacing like manufacturing jobs and, and replacing a lot of the labor force in this country and like that the sort of changing scape of, of what it meant to be a laborer in this country. And I always thought to myself, well, you know, it's a good thing that uh, creative work will never be replaced by robots. And of course, <laughs> now I'm eating my words a little bit on that. Um, I still am of the opinion, of the considered opinion, that the AI-generated, you know, uh, copy content. Uh, I've played around with those things a little bit. I've dicked around with ChatGPT. I've read some articles. Is is a, a robot coming for your job? And all these kind of scaremongering tech sphere articles that are sort of like um, they have to have a hot take on it, regardless of whether or not it's got any validity. And I, again, like I've dicked around with these things a little bit, and and the the stuff they put out is dry and informative it doesn't have a lot of personality it's really workmanlike and serviceable but you can sort of tell there's there's if you do enough of it if you read enough ai generated content you can sort of see the uh, the patterns emerging and, and you start to be able to recognize it but that's the thing about ai it's adaptive it's machine learning it just gets better and yeah. the more you play with it trying to find the holes the more it realizes you're looking for holes and patches them before you can find the next round so hasta la vista baby it's scary but as of right now, I'm pretty sure my job is still safe. But I, I don't want to be one of those people that, like, you know, sits on the, 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 the front lawn and impotently shakes my fist at, uh, why are things changing? Why aren't they the way they used to be? Get off my lawn. So it's a, it's a dicey thing. But um, I've seen a lot of that kind of stuff happening on TikTok lately, too. I read uh, an article. I want to say it was a review of a video game, and I don't remember for the life of me which one it was. Sorry for that. But uh, it was a completely AI-generated review of a video game. And it was actually quite concise and uh, thought-provoking. And it pulled up all the exact points that I would have raised. And I'm like, oh, shit. Some of this could be a, a thing in the future. But then I see some stupid shit like uh, someone on Etsy is selling these rings that you can put on your hand uh, that look like you have an extra finger. That way, Interesting. if you're in like a picture, you can wear this ring and make people think that the picture was AI generated. <laughs> they and, can't get the hands right, can they? No. And so I don't know if that's scary in a in a kind of a deep fake kind of way. Like someone could be like, that wasn't me, your honor. Clearly you can see I have seven fingers and I don't have seven fingers uh, kind of way. Or I don't know. I haven't decided where I feel oh. on that one, but... Life imitates art and vice versa. It's just a never-ending cycle of uh, constant referential meta-bullshit. I will tell you, and this this part amuses me, and uh, uh, I, I did sit down, uh, finally. I don't like to, re I don't like to rely on uh, reviewers uh, to make my opinions for me, for the most part. I don't really read reviews until after I'm done with a thing, uh, just to kind of mesh up and uh, in particular, I'm talking about like Quantumania, Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania. I did Have go you seen out and check that. I did go out and check that out. Oh, oh yeah. And uh, we're not going to spoil it. Don't worry, Smell. We got you, bro. We're not spoiling this one yet. It's too early. But uh, there were uh, things I really absolutely loved about the movie. Uh, and then there were things like that I kind of felt were a little squidgy. I uh, didn't care yeah. for them all that much. And, and we won't get into too much about it, but uh, I, I kind of read a bunch of the reviews after the fact, and I'm, I saw some of them, and I'm like, okay, I kind of get that criticism. I get that criticism. And I won't say it's my favorite Marvel movie, because it's not. No, uh, no. But, I mean, it was it was serviceable for what it was. 
I can understand. And it was not as bad as the reviewers said. No. I think people are getting burned out on things like the Marvel movies and 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 if you if you're in that camp, I'm not I'm not slamming you for it. I get it. There's just a it's a glut of content that you're never going to be able to like everything. You shouldn't like everything. Uh, I, I I even as a Star Wars fan, I don't like every Star Wars movie. Or I like them for very and like I said, I've turned into a different kind of fan lately, where I've embraced the things I do like and I try to find something positive about everything. But I don't not really go out of my way to hate on something anymore. Uh, as much as I can without being fully educated. Uh, which brings me to what I wanted to talk about first. There was this show on this little platform called HBO Max. You may have heard of it. Um, eh, once or twice. HBO Max decided to do an edgy uh, reinvention of the Scooby-Doo Gang, which is their Velma show. Now, Velma's been over for a little while. Uh, so I'm not going to spoil too much of it here other than the stuff that we've talked about ad nauseum previously about Mindy Kaling and, and why this show didn't need to be a show, uh, why Mm -hmm. this did not need to be a thing. I sent Jim over, uh, over the course of the week while we were uh, leading up to this, uh, recording, I sent him, uh, uh, there's a guy I watch on YouTube and he does the honest trailers. Yeah, Screen Junkies. It, it's a great channel. I love it. Screen I love junkies, their stuff. Right. I'll promote them any day of the week. But uh, they, they do epic video game uh, reviews, and they do uh, honest trailers for movies and TV shows and streaming platforms and whatnot. And They've kind of run the gamut now. But they did one for Velma, which I just recently finished watching. If you love revisiting your favorite childhood cartoon... Jinkies! but also hated everything about it. Then strap in for a series dripping with contempt for the audience and the source material. Uh, basically, I watched that show out of morbid curiosity. I knew I wasn't going to like it, uh, but I was hoping I could find something to take away from it. Like I said, I try to find something I could take away from everything. Um, yeah, I've noticed this weird phenomenon when it comes to critical things. Um, the more critics bash something the more I, I tend to enjoy it. And it's a weird thing. Like, if somebody says, oh, this movie, is, this movie or TV show or music or whatever is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I go in and I check it out and it less than blows me away, I kind of want to be disappointed. But if somebody says this thing is a stinker, it's a turkey, you're going to fucking hate it, I go and watch it, and my reaction coming away from it is like, well, that was hardly shit at all. So it, I'm kind well, of, if you set the I don't bar low, immune. you got to set the yeah, bar real low, I, and then you, anything's going to I'm not immune to reviews. Right. But, like, if, if, I, if I go in there expecting something's going to be a turd and then it's not terrible, I wind up actually liking it more than something I was told was great that less than blows me away. Right, and, and we talked about the uh, both the critical reception and the user score for Velma. Uh, critical reception is, is atrocious. Uh, fan mm-hmm. reception is atrocious. Jinkies! But the show yeah. is well-watched. And I think that's due to fans having due diligence and, and wanting to see a train wreck as it happens. Um, spoiler alert. You have some hate watching going it, on? It's a train wreck. It really is. Yeah. Uh, um, so I kind of, and we both mo- basically made the joke that I watched it so you didn't have to. Um, Which I still appreciate very much to make the mistake. That's <laughs> funny. And it's funny, you pulled some shit with... You, you were quick to use your Venmo account to fuck with me, and I appreciate that. It was funny <laughs> as hell. Because uh, uh, I, I had mentioned over chat that I watched this to save Jim the trouble of having to watch it. 
And Jim, uh, uh, he says, oh, what do I owe you for that? And I sent him back the, the gif of uh, Dr. Evil. I said, one million dollars. One million dollars. And, and Jim, what did you read? You renegotiated to two dollars, I think. Yeah, I came back with the Paperboy gift from uh, Better Off Dead, the wonderful 80s movie with John Cusack, <laughs> and said, uh, how about two dollars? Didn't ask for a dime. Two dollars. And then uh, and you came I, back and split the difference with me. Yeah, I, I used the South Park meme of uh, Chef's parents uh, and the Loch Ness Monster, the tree fitty. Now don't go offering the Sono tree fitty one! And so I thought we were just jokey joking, and then I get an alert from Venmo saying, Jim has sent you $3.50. What's in your wallet? And well, I mean, laugh, okay, look, when you're laugh, negotiating with somebody, laugh. they start off at a million dollars, and you come back with two, and they, they, they meet you in the middle with three fifty. I mean, that's, you can't, that's, that's an amazing place just, to get to, and I just, just couldn't pass it up. It shows that I'm a very terrible negotiator. I should have aimed higher. <laughs> at least the last time I got beer out of the deal. <laughs> well, you can get a beer at this one if you go to a bar with reasonable prices. There's no bars with reasonable prices around here. Well, see, that's the difference between there and Milwaukee. You can always go out and get a round of drinks for 20 bucks anywhere you go in Milwaukee. And I'm talking like pretty much a round for the bar. Because the beer comes from here, so it doesn't really need to get shipped that far. I mean, the, the, the classic Lewis Black joke about how, you know, how do people afford to drink in other cities? He actually did a show in Milwaukee. I want to say it was Summerfest about 20, 25 years ago. And you can find the clip on the internet if you look for it. And he kind of like chides Milwaukeeans for... Uh, you know, there's, there's alcoholics and there's professionals. When, when do you people know that it's like New Year's Eve or, or St. Patrick's Day? Is that when you drink with funny hats on? It costs me less to buy a fucking plane ticket from New York City, fly here, get a hotel room, drink all weekend, and then go home, than it would cost me to go out drinking a night in New York City. And that, that's, inflation that's notwithstanding, that's still the case. Yeah. And that, I think, more than any other reason, is why, like, every year or every other year, I see another news article saying, yep. Wisconsin is still the drunkest state in the union by a large margin, not even close. Here's the latest study that proves it. And uh, there's a famous graphic that I employ a lot when talking to people from out of state. They're like, oh, no, my state could drink yours under the table. I'm like, first of all, no. Second, fuck no. you. Third, here's proof why that's not true. Your faith. And there's a famous uh, USA Today article that came out that uh, listed the top 20 drunkest cities in, uh, in the country. And 12 of them are here in Wisconsin. 12 of the top 20 countrywide. And there's other, like, graphics that, uh, there's a graphic. The drunkest cities in the, or the the, the 50 drunkest counties in the country, all but three are in Wisconsin. So, yeah, we're pretty much champion alcoholics up here, so uh, don't come for us. Don't come for us. We will destroy you. Number one. Number one. Number one. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, so no real spoiler. I didn't care for Velma for all the reasons we've previously discussed. It's formulaic in that it's trying to be edgy and it doesn't really pull it off. They do massive changes to the core uh, cast uh, for no other reason other than uh, to do it. Uh, to the point where the, the cast basically doesn't resemble themselves at all. And I'm not talking about their racial change. I'm talking about characterization changes. They don't rem- they don't resemble remotely the Scooby Gang of old. And uh, if you want to get kind of a feel for what the hell was going on with Velma, season one, because they're making season two. Oh dear God, no! For whatever reason. Who is this for? Check out uh, Screen Junkies' uh, uh, honest trailer for Velma on uh, 
on YouTube. I think that's pretty much sums up my yeah. feelings of the whole thing. But if you're wondering why they made this show in particular, just remember the old internet rule. If you can't tell what the target of the jokes are, it's you for watching it. Uh, it's it's worth a watch more show than the actual show is. And I think what, 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 what pisses me off most about it, and again, I didn't watch it, but based on the opinions of everybody I respect, including you and the people from Screen Junkies and everybody else who I've read that said it was a turkey, the thing that makes me the maddest about it is that this is one of those things that's going to lend credibility to when the haters say, why is everything got to be diverse and woke now? Woke why are we going to have reboots? With, you know, because this definitely dovetails into that, and it objectively sucks. So it's going to be one of those uh, codifiers, one of those things that the haters can point to to be like, see, everything that's woke sucks. Why do they got to Shaggy's black and Velma's a gay Indian woman. Why do they got to make everything woke? It just sucks. It's not. It doesn't suck because it's woke. It sucks because it sucks. It's like the same thing with like the Ghostbusters reboot with the women. It didn't suck because they had a female cast. It sucked because it just wasn't written very well, and it didn't have a whole lot of in, in, you know ingenuity or imagination behind it. And it, again, right. it didn't but suck. It I don't want to denigrate that. It wasn't that. bad. But it just anytime but, something comes yeah. out that like Ocean's Eight or whatever with the, the the female cast, it's like you know it's 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 not it's not bad because of that. It just was kind of perfunctory, un unnecessary, and inessential. That's all. <laughs> not bad because of that. It's just bad. And again, I'm not going to shit on Ghostbusters. Like I said, that's one of the movies I was able to find some positives out of. Stuff yeah, that I actually liked. I actually about enjoyed it. it. I get it. It wasn't like all the other ones for me, but I get it. But that kind of leads me into uh, the next little topic I wanted to talk about. Uh, things that I used to really enjoy that have turned into a big giant pile of suck. Uh, Scott mm. Adams has made the news oh, recently. And I know you wanted to talk about this a little bit, so... Uh, uh, bit. For, for those of you who don't know, Scott Adams is the creator of long-running comic Dilbert. Uh, I used to love Dilbert. I did. I watched the show when it came out. I remember scholastic book fairs where I would pick up the fucking books. Uh, I think probably in my garage I still probably got a Dilbert book or two that I can get rid of now. Uh, <laughs> safely. But uh, yeah. safely, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that happens to everyone who gets near me. Uh, but, uh... Dilbert's creator, Scott Adams, has made the news. Jim, what do you talk about that? Yeah, Dilbert, uh, he, the guy has been making some questionable statements for quite a while. More I like mean, Dill Hole, am I right? <laughs> you are! Yeah, but like he's had some issues for a minute because he's been kind of like... Ultra right-wing... <sighs> yeah, I mean, Dilbert is ostensibly a workplace comic strip... Um, if, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's the guy with the goofy tie that bends upward and his stupid pointy-haired boss and his dog that looks like him. It's, for most of its run, been largely innocuous. It kind of, like, it occupies that same space as, like, office space or the office. Anything that's, like, workplace humor. Ha-ha, right. we can all laugh at how stupid meetings are. We can all laugh at that one guy in the office who's the suck-up who gets promoted because he's a brown noser more so than because he has any actual talent. It kind of just trades on those tropes a lot. But, uh... The creator, Scott Adams, has just been very quietly making really questionably racist statements for a while. Like, he's been building themes into the comic that were sort of, like, anti-woke, and he's poked fun at, like, affirmative action when that was a thing. You know, just really eh, some kind of stuff you look at and you go, well, I mean, he's obviously treading a very thin line, but he's staying on the side of it where he can sort of still get away with, like, winking at a little bit. But... The dude just went full fascist in this, apparently, like, I didn't watch it, 
but he had this YouTube live rant where I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but not by fucking much. I don't have it directly in front of me, but he said, white people should just stay the hell away from black people because they're a hate group. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. The best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. He fucking went there. He just came right out and said, black people, which, you know, damning an entire culture of people as being a hate group. Yeah. And yeah. the backlash was swift and decisive. Um, there was be. a book that he had coming. Yeah. There was a book coming out, like a, just a book he'd written, not even a comic collection or something like that, not, not like a Dilbert anthology. But he was writing a book, and he's written a couple of books that were not Dilbert-related, um, and that's been canceled by his publisher. Uh, several newspapers dropped him. Almost uh, and all before, of them, as far as yeah, I almost, know. Well, uh, he's, he's done now, because a lot of newspapers dropped the strip voluntarily, and then seeing that that was kind of the way things were going, Andrews McMeal, uh, who was the, the syndication uh place that that put his comics into newspapers dropped him entirely and he apparently uh had previously been quoted as saying that the the even though newspapers are kind of on their way out and print is ostensibly dying he had said that print and not even the books he puts out but actual print runs of his comic books in the newspapers was 80 percent of his income and that is gone now and you know it, you love to see it 20 yeah, between R. Kelly getting extra years lopped onto his sentence and, and uh, Harvey Weinstein years. getting extra years added yeah. to his sentence. 2023 is so far the sort of fuck around and find out year. Yeah. Uh, a lot of these guys have been fucking around for a while, and 2023 is the find out portion of their personal story. Um, and he's just the latest one to do it. You know, and I think we were talking a little earlier before we kind of popped in the mics here about how there's a lot of parallels to be drawn between Scott Adams and J.K. Rowling. Right. Um, because... Scott Adams has chosen people of color as his particular target for hate, and J.K. Rowling is famously a turf. She has several times been challenged on and doubled down on her anti-trans beliefs. <laughs> Which is just particularly sad where, where she's gross. concerned, because yeah. he, they're gross. But she also kind of made a her bones. She, she, made, she created this universe where... The misfits and the the maligned people, the people that nobody, the people others were willing to write off, kind of rose up and became the heroes. And she very famously, you know, built in the fact that that uh, Dumbledore was gay and it was easily the least interesting thing about him. It was just a fact of his existence. And so she was a huge hero. There are still a lot of Powderheads out there who were, you know, pushing forty or even in some cases even older than forty who read these things when they were teenagers or or young adults and they still identify as a Ravenclaw or whatever the fuck it is, but. You know, even, like, the stars of the films have had to distance themselves from her views, and people like um, and uh, Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint and Emma Watson, the, the big three stars of the show for the, the all the films, have, have come out and said, well, you have to kind of separate the art from the artist on this one. If you want to disregard her, that's understandable and appropriate, but, you know, she still created this universe that resonated with a lot of people. But, you know... J.K. Rowling and Scott Adams are living creators of content, so they are around to be able to enjoy the, or not enjoy, the fruits of their hatred. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, it's real hard not to get all schadenfreude about it. Let me try that again. It's real hard not to get all schadenfreude about it, <clears throat> to uh, look at them and, and think, you know, you brought this on yourself, uh, you got nobody to blame but you, and whatever backlash you suffer from this, whether it's societal 
whether it's financial, whether it's just getting your deals canceled because you're a hater. There's just no room for that shit anymore in 2023. There hasn't been for a long no. time, but increasingly there really fucking isn't lately. Schadenfreude. I like that. Schadenfreude. It's one of those amazing words that there's just no... It's, it, the Germans seem to have this very specific and direct uh, pain glossary uh, to describe very di- specific types of things that we just don't have any direct correlations or translations for in English. It's one of my favorite German words. Another one is Beckfiefengesicht. Uh, <clears throat> I was just going to mention Which is very complicated. Beckfiefengesicht is, is basically, and, and that was one of mine too, I was going to mention that. I had an old co-worker named Lynn uh, who, uh, we, had a, we had a mutual co-worker. Uh, his name is Brian. I have no problem saying Brian's name because I don't think Brian listens. But Brian was a racist. Brian was a sexist. Brian liked to open his mouth and say dumb shit at all kinds of times. We got to call those he, people out. Fuck them. And, and I did. And that's why Brian and I didn't get along. Uh, but yeah. Lynn was explaining to me this German compound word, Bachweifengesicht. And what that basically means, uh, the loose translation, and I've looked it up, I've found photographic evidence... The, the basic gist of it is a face in need of a fist. Pop. Punchable. Just somebody punchable. And, and, and that Think guy like Martin Shkreli or Matt Gates or Ben Shapiro. Oh, man. Oh, man. I'd love to punch Ben Shapiro. Uh, off, the, off the record, I kind of I stumbled onto this TikTok trend the other day. It was like the, the deep fakes. Like, and it's not like actual video yeah. of them. But it's like people who do like vocal impressions of like Trump and Biden and Obama and, and, and other politicians. But they're playing video games and talking shit to each other in video games. Uh, like I guess there was one where Joe Biden was blowing up Donald Trump's house in Minecraft because Donald yeah. Trump pissed him off. And it, it's, it's, it's stupid as shit ever, but it's funny as hell. And it reminded me because... Uh, they had one with Ben Shapiro tagging along the other day, and they were just ragging on him the entire time. So, which he deserves. Fuck that guy. Yeah, but, but uh, I've noticed in sort of like picking on Scott Adams and, and we will. J.K. Rowling, I've sort of and come up will. with a um, yeah, I've sort of come up with a weird corollary to that, which is related, but not quite the same thing. Um, and, and it sort of dovetails in with with Joe Rowling's sort of like she's a. A youth author, you know, kind of made young adult fiction. Before they called it YA fiction, uh, one of my favorite writers growing up was Roald Dahl. Uh, He of the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and James and the Giant Peach and the Big Friendly Giant. Um, He's been kind of retconned as being problematic uh, because apparently he was kind of privately anti-Semitic. And that's a big old bummer. You know, you never want to hear that kind of stuff about people you look up to or admire. But Especially when they're gone and you can't confirm or deny it. At least when yeah. we hear bad shit about Joe Rowling, she's there to fucking blast her on Twitter and prove that yeah. we're right, you know? Scott She'll Adams double is, down that shit. Scott Adams is able to go on Fox News and, and fucking prove that we're right about him. But with, like, mm-hmm. troublesome shit about, like, oh, for instance, uh, you're talking about Roald Dahl, and what about... Uh, I, there were rumors at one point or another that uh, uh, Tolkien might have been... Uh, anti-Semitic as well, which I don't know if that I mean, carries any weight. It's all kind of same with H.P. Lovecraft, right? Yeah, I mean these classic authors—they were of a time, and I mean you know it's tough because 
you can drive a Volkswagen or you can drive a Ford, but the Volkswagen was pretty much championed by Hitler, and uh, and the Ford was Henry also Ford championed was by douche. Hitler. I mean, he yeah yeah he had a uh, Hitler had a picture of Henry Ford on the wall behind his desk, very famously because he admired his anti-Semitism, and it's like you kind of have to look at these things. You, you need to ascribe the right weight to them, and you need to look at them through a certain kind of lens. And I think. Like we just said, with Scott Adams and J.K. Rowling still being alive and being able to be held to account. But just recently, Roald Dahl kind of popped back in the news. Dude, dude's been dead for years. He's not exactly churning out any new material. Right. But um, a lot of his books are considered childhood classics. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, obviously, Willy Wonka, it's very beloved. James they and just did a Beach uh, and all that. Yeah, yeah, they just did a BFG. Spielberg worked on a, you know, uh, Roald Dahl's anti-Semitism notwithstanding. Spielberg worked on a, um, who is himself obviously Jewish, Worked on the uh, the BFG uh, movie that came out, I want to say, a couple years ago now. But Roald Dahl is getting retroactively censored in new editions of his books post his demise are being released where they, they cut out what would, by current standards, be considered to be objectionable language. Now, reading from an article on Today, um, the, the Today Show, the print version... Penguin Random House announced on Friday it will republish Roald Dahl's children's books in original or classic form, following an ongoing editing controversy. The news is a response to the publisher's earlier decision to change language within Dahl's books currently in circulation in the UK and US, which include Matilda and James and the Giant Peach. The altered language was first reported by the Daily Telegraph on February 17th. Words like fat, ugly, and crazy were edited out, and language related to gender, weight, appearance, and more was altered. Text at the bottom of the copyright page of the books explains the changes. Words matter. The wonderful words of Roald Dahl can transport you to different worlds and introduce you to the most marvelous characters. This book was written many years ago, and so we regularly review the language to ensure that it can continue to be enjoyed by all today. Following widespread backlash from readers, literary minds, and the queen consort herself, i.e. Camilla Parker Bowles, who's King Charles's wife, Penguin Random House will republish 17 of Dahl's unedited titles later this year as part of the Roald Dahl Classic Collection. So basically what happened is they're looking at Roald Dahl's books under a modern lens and they're cutting language some people might find offensive and then due to swift backlash, basically they classic coked them. Okay, we get that you don't like the new version, the new sweeter version. We'll go ahead and repackage the old version under the classic label so you can pick which one you want, but they're both still going to be available. And as somebody who writes for a living, I'm pretty sure I know how I feel about this. I, I, I really want to kind of put this in the same box as taking down Confederate statues um, because they are offensive by today's standards. Right. But something about it is just different. Something about it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And I can't quite codify why, but there's a I don't similar know, thing, man. It's just, there's a similar thing that happened with... Uh... Uh, Mark Twain, for instance, uh, I was actually listening yeah. to a, a stand-up bit the other day on uh, Spotify. I listened to stand-up comedy while I'm at work, and there was yeah. this whole uh, comedy bit about uh, editing, um, like the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, uh, or Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, or whatever the book's called. I, I haven't read it in years, but uh, those of you who have read it, or have read any of other Mr. Clemens' uh, rather well-known works. Uh, are are probably aware of his very fond use of the N word, very loose mm -hmm. usage of the N word, and uh, and we can easily just brush it off and, like you said, say, oh, they're from a time, you know, they're they're from a certain point in time, and we have to kind of take that into account. And it's like, 
I, I get that. Because yeah, it's a seminal work for a reason. Sam Clemens, Mark Twain was a was a respected and well known author. His work holds weight to this day, but editing it like posthumously without the uh, editorial approval of uh, the author just seems suspect. It changes yeah. the dynamic of it in a way that uh, could have unintentional consequences. It could. Uh, I think if we were alive, uh, if Roald Dahl was alive and was able to reflect on his earlier works and go, okay, so there's some things that I don't like about this stuff, I'm going to re-edit. I think... See, I've come out on this other side of this argument, too, in in regards to uh, George Lucas. When George Lucas edited the original trilogy... And added a bunch. That's of a good analogy. Uh, I, I, was, I was thinking about that the same way too. It's it's a real cognitive dissonance yeah. sort of moment. It's, it's really weird to find yourself on both sides of the argument because with the Star yeah. Wars things, I, it was like we talked about before. I had to find stuff I liked about the re-edits. There was stuff that I liked. Uh, I liked when they put the new or Ian McDermott in the Emperor's position uh, on Empire Strikes Back on that conference call with Darth Vader and. Uh, I liked that, you know... <laughs> Zoom was, does feel like that sometimes. Well, <laughs> right? And then, uh, but there's stuff that I definitely hated. Greedo shooting first and, and everything else. And mm-hmm. there was definitely stuff that I didn't like. So you got to pull what you like from it. But at the end of the day, whether I liked it or hated it, George Lucas made that decision. The creator yeah. of this art, the creator of this work, made that decision. Whereas what we're getting from, uh, like, editing Mark Twain, uh, or with, uh, even with, uh, to a lesser degree, some of the stuff we get out of Tolkien's camp these days, uh, because Tolkien's camp is being, it was run by Christopher Tolkien, and I think uh, other descendants are running it now. Um, but people who aren't into, the, like, the idea of the Rings of Power series, or the fact that they're making new Lord of the Rings movies again for whatever goddamn reason. Because um, there's money in it. Right. Um, and Tolkien's not the one doing the editorial work on that. Same thing with Roald Dahl. I think if Roald Dahl was here to make those editorial decisions and say, hey, look, uh, I was uneducated, I fucked up, uh, maybe some shit's a little bit murky and, and things I could have said differently. Doing a James Gunn. Right. Uh, mea culpa. If, he's a, if he was around to pull right. a mea culpa, I think I'd be more on board with it. I may not like it, but I think I'd be more on board with it uh, just because yeah. it would be him making that editorial decision. Um, but definitely let us know where you weigh in on that because, again, I, like I said, I found myself on both sides of this argument and it's a fucking weird place to be straddling that line. It um, is. But you know, And I posted s- about this on my Facebook, about the Roald Dahl thing specifically, and I, I had a comment from Justin Fermanick, who's a good friend of mine. He uh, is a listener. What's up, Justin? And he made, yeah, hey, how are you doing, Justin? He made a good point, and I, this sort of like jumped into my head, and it's sort of, it's, I've accepted this as my own headcanon on the situation now, in reference to Roald Dahl. This is totally different from removing, let me try that again. This is totally different from removing statues and monuments. Those were later works created to commemorate something earlier. This is an earlier work created within a specific time and era. I can see if you were doing something like a play or other live work where you have to perform the offensive parts that you would change them or do a different play. But otherwise, this is like some of the recordings of old racist songs that we deal with in my hobby of barbershop music. It's a piece of art from its time, 
recognize it and use it to educate. And that really, I think, puts a nice button on how I feel about it. He put it into words that I didn't and couldn't. Um, and I appreciate his perspective on that. And I think he's right about it. You kind of have to, to chalk it up to a certain degree as being a product of its time and just kind of leave it there. Like, even when Disney Channel plays Dumbo now because of, like, the, the racist crow song, or, like, when yeah. Disney plays a song that has firearms, explosives, or if it was a post-war cartoon that had, like, uh, racism, uh, like anti-Japanese racism or something, they put a disclaimer in front of it. This right. was a created work that came from a different time. There were different social mores at the time, and, and view it through the lens of historical context. We're not going to change it, but we do want to provide you with a little bit of, of a framework context. to understand that this is yeah. something different than we would do now. And that's, I think, the way to handle that shit. Don't censor it, like we talked about last week in the Kids Bop episode. You, you know, contextualize it. Don't censor it. Contextualize it. Man, that Kids Bop episode still haunts me. I'll tell you that much. Um, I feel you on that one. This kind of leads into the last little news article bit that I wanted to talk about. I read an article about uh, uh, they're going to be releasing a book. I think it's a book. I think it's going to stay as a book. It might, they might adapt it into a movie or whatnot. But it's a, a follow-up to the Dr. Seuss Christmas classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And immediately, I was just like, how could they do this? Dr. Seuss is dead. Dr. Seuss is yeah. dead. But then I started looking at it going, you know, Dr. Seuss has been dead quite a long time. And this isn't the first time they've adapted Seuss's work without Seuss. So, okay, maybe I'm being a little bit judgy, but uh, it's being followed up. It's called uh, How the Grinch Lost Christmas, uh, based on an original story by Alastair Helm, who is a writer that's worked with Dr. Seuss before. He uh, wrote books like uh, If I Ran Your School and I Am the Cat in the Hat, you know, books that are in that universe that follow that same uh, structure and theme, and so somebody that has has at least been given the reins of that particular right. world in a way that's Keys been meaningful previously, right? Uh, and I've had the same kind of thought process, not necessarily about Doctor Seuss's works, but uh, I read a couple of books that were in the Godfather universe uh, that took place posthumously to uh, Mario Puzo dying, and uh, they just kind of found a writer that could encapsulate what they wanted to accomplish. Uh, who wrote in a similar enough style uh, to take the reins. And, and I kind of get that. Tom Clancy does that all the time. But as many of Tom Clancy books are on the shelf, you'll be surprised to see how many of them just say Tom Clancy in big letters, but then have another author listed on the bottom as the person who actually wrote the book. He's a brand, not so much an actual creator anymore. Right. And that's where we are with Dr. Seuss. And, and that's kind of where I had yeah. to come with that as well, because... My initial knee-jerk reaction was to be like, how dare they tamper with Dr. Seuss? And then I stopped to realize, it's like, oh, well, they've been doing that for years. Uh, between having other writers write his uh, in the same universe, or like the adaptation with Jim Carrey, or the adaptation with Benedict Cumberbatch, or um, all of these different adaptations, they've already played around enough with the canon to where it's like, it's understandable. And it's with the consent of the publishers. It's with the consent of... The the Giselle estate. The estate, yeah. Giselle? The Seuss estate. How, you know, there's, there's been so much um, argument about how to even yeah, pronounce Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss is what he's known as, but apparently uh, there's people, there's a certain camp that says it's supposed to be Seuss, and whether it's Geisel or Giselle. I mean, the guy, 
Nobody really knows. We just call him Dr. Seuss because that's what everybody calls him. It's easy. Regardless of what he would have called himself, it's just kind of what... If you say anything else, regardless of how correct it is, nobody's going to know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. When asked about his addition to the uh, Dr. Seuss legacy character, the Grinch, uh, Haim wrote, uh, All throughout writing this story, I couldn't fully believe that I was actually getting to play in the amazing creative sandbox Dr. Seuss created all those decades ago. When I heard of the opportunity to be a part of this project, I jumped at the chance, only to find that it was difficult and daunting to approach adding to or expanding such an esteemed and treasured part of the American Christmas canon. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. I, I'm a big fan of the Grinch in particular. I'm a big fan of Dr. Seuss. I always have been. Dr. Seuss. Seuss. And of course, we, we can't we can't talk about Roald Dahl and Dr. Seuss back to back like that, Dr. Seuss, whatever the fuck you want to call him, without also acknowledging that I don't think this Roald Dahl thing would be happening if not for the fact that Dr. Seuss was canceled last year uh, because of some questionable language in some of his books. I'm reading this from the New York Times. Uh, Dr. Seuss books are pulled and a cancel controversy, cancel culture controversy erupts. Um, in the summer of 1936, Theodore Geisel was in, I'm not going to read that part, that's all backups, but... And to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street has some anti-Asian tropes in it because we have some very uh, classically racist depictions of Asian immigrants in that book. And there are some other things, too. We don't want to go too deep into this. This is not a rabbit hole we want to fall down. We actually got a topic to talk about today. But <laughs> I think the, 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 the Dr. Seuss thing, them going back and looking at that and going, yeah, there's some drawings that are pretty caricature and racist and there's some language that's pretty caricature and racist not of the time but obviously now we look back on it and it's it's deeply inappropriate and indisputably inappropriate so they changed a lot of that too like the Sousa state changed a lot of that so i think probably anybody who writes children's books or wrote children's books years and years ago they're still read today they're looking at those using the same sort of like won't somebody think of the children misguided idea that is causing people to uh you know, cancel drag shows instead of, like, you know, going after places where kids actually get molested, like the church. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, who am I to judge uh, besides just some guy with a big mouth and a podcast? So it's just weird. <laughs> it's a weird time to be alive, and it's a weird time in the culture when somebody can look back on stuff as, as seemingly innocuous that we remember fondly from our youth. It was like Dr. Seuss and, and Roald Dahl, and looking at that through a modern lens and saying, yeah, this shit needs some, uh, some cleaning up regardless of, of the author's intention or their alive status. We just got to kind of look at some of this stuff. And, I mean, do we? Maybe. But I don't know. It's a very sticky thing. We, we need to Not going to make any news. Or... Yeah. We, we need to contextualize it. We don't need to uh, ban it. I, I'm not in favor of banning books. Uh, no. I'm not even in favor of banning Dilbert. Fuck him. Let him have his books out there. I just won't read them. He can self-publish. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. Like... I don't know. I mean, that's... I'm not one of these... A big a big characteristic, a big hallmark, a big marker of people on the right is that I don't like that, ban it. I don't like people right. that have abortions, ban them. I don't like drag queen story hour, ban it. I don't like... You know, and like, again, not, not to get down a rabbit hole or anything, but this week, Ron DeSantis, who is the uh, asshole governor of Florida, who does things like Fuck's Deep Six, day. the... Um, yeah, he, he said that, you know, the... Uh, Education on Black America is not worth teaching, and it has no education advice. Let's get rid of that. Uh, among other things, like Florida was one of the first to jump on banning abortion after the Dobbs decision came down. It's just not a good place to be if you care about human rights. But he also just came out recently, and um, 
because Disney is doing things like <gasps> they're putting out movies that actually have non-straight, non-white characters in them. Um, oh, Disney is 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 prom- woke has become like the right wing. Uh, dog whistle. Word of choice for... Yeah, it's a dog whistle for... This is inclusive and asks me to be respectful of somebody else's life experience. And I don't care for that. So I'm going to damn it with this fake-ass slur and call it woke. Because I can't be bothered to step outside my own experience. Well, Disney is a major-ass corporation. Obviously a multi-billion dollar international conglomerate. Um, and they've sort of had this weird liminal space within Florida. Because they obviously have the theme park there and, and some studios and everything else. But right. Disney has for a long time famously sort of like governed themselves, almost like a native reservation would on their own land. They kind of have their own bylaws and their own thing. And because they make so much money, They're pretty much everybody just let them do that. Yeah. Until Disney started saying and doing things that the anti-woke right-wing politicians didn't like. So Ron DeSantis came out and said, yeah, we're ending Disney's autonomous, essentially self-government within the state of Florida. We're pulling all that shit, not letting them get away with things anymore. And we're going to hold them to account and make them pay their fair share in taxes and blah, 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 blah. And it just occurs to me how disingenuous these right-wing motherfuckers are when they make all this noise about, oh, small government and free market until one of these massive corporations says something they don't like. And then suddenly they get real concerned about tax revenue and corporate government. If only we could treat religion the same way. Oh, Jesus. Ironically, Jesus. Fuck Ron DeSantis. Yep. And I, I just can't... Uh, the, the disingenuous, two-faced duplicity on that side of the aisle. You know, again, it's not a political podcast, but everything is political now because we live in a in a, uh, a, a post-apocalyptic, in the, the capitalistic dystopia. Yeah. It the is. The worst timeline. But! Oh, but. by the way. But. But. <laughs> yeah. uh, one last little postscript to the rolled doll thing. That guy was yeah. a filthy motherfucker, and he loved to apply a filthy jokes into his books. And one of my favorite uh, stories that I heard about this guy was that uh, in one of his earlier books, published before, and I don't know what the book is, so. Okay, so in 1979, Roald Dahl uh, wrote a book called uh, My Uncle Oswald. And, and this book is not kid fair at all, which is fine. Nope. Children's authors can write adult books as well. I mean, witness Shel Silverstein, who wrote some of the most beloved kids' poetry with Where the Sidewalk Ends, and also was a pretty freaking contributor to Playboy. Yeah. Um, the equally witty and disgusting story revolves around Oswald Hendricks Cornelius. The title, titular uncle and greatest fornicator of all time, quote, end quote. Along with his sexy accomplice, Yasmin Howcomely, oh, that's a James Bond title right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he devises a complicated get-rich-quick scheme that involves Howcomely seducing Europe's most famous men and then selling used condoms full of their spent semen to women wishing to birth famous progeny. Yikes. So there's that. That's an interesting idea. But the reason I bring that up, the term Snozberry comes up when Yasmin Howcomely recounts her experience with George Bernard Shaw. And I quote from the book, How did you manage to roll the old rubbery thing on him? There's only one way when they get violent, Yasmin said. I grabbed hold of his Snozberry and hung on to it like a grim death and gave it a twist or two to make him hold still. So, if you've followed context on that, you'll realize that they're talking about 
a penis. Snozberry, yep. uh, in the world of Roald Dahl, uh, is a slang term for penis. Uh, now sure enough, take, take it back to uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory when they're standing in the in the uh, uh, the waiting lickable room, wallpaper. the guest room, the lickable wallpaper. Lick an orange; it tastes like an orange. Lick a pineapple; it tastes like a pineapple. Go ahead, try it. Mmm, oh. I got a plum. Grandpa, this banana's fantastic. It tastes so real. Try some more. The strawberries taste like strawberries. The snozberries taste like snozberries. Snozberries? Who ever heard of a snozberry? <laughs> a little bit salty, a little bit sweaty. Ugh. Gross. No, thank you. So a little filthy, little little, little aside there for Roald Dahl. I find it funny and also kind of gross. But we're not here to talk about snozberries today. Penis. We are nope. not on that today. But uh, before we get into the topic, I do want to remind everybody that the Feel Your Fandom podcast is a two-way conduit of conversation between us, uh, the hosts, and you, the listeners. And we always want to uh, have you weigh in and, and give us your comments and send us your thoughts um, because we wouldn't be able to do this without someone to talk to. And we definitely can talk to each other all day, but ultimately we want to know what you think. And there's a couple of ways you can get in touch with us to do that. You can reach us. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash feelyourfandom. You can send us an email the good old-fashioned way at feelyourfandom at gmail.com. FYF Talent Booking is the backup Gmail address. Uh, you can reach us on what's left of Twitter at at fuel underscore yo. We're on Instagram at at feelyourfandom. And, of course, you can find us on all the great platforms where podcasts are bought, sold, trade, bartered, and stolen. We're on Audible, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on Stitcher, we're on Google and Apple Podcasts. If you can find podcasts there, you will also find us there, and you can jam us nice, deep in your ear holes. Absolutely, and we do appreciate it that you do. Uh, I'm always appreciative to get emails or comments and, and, and people listening. And uh, If you're new, we want to say welcome. Uh, I don't know how you found us, but we're glad you found us. Um, you can find us everywhere. Like you said, we're kind of all over the map. Uh, I was trying to explain to someone the other night. They're like, oh, you do a podcast. Where, where can I find you? I'm like, Jeez, where can't you find us? Right. You can throw a stick and find us. It's great. Try to but... avoid us. We're coming for you. <laughs> knock, knock. We're at your front door. Um, but today I kind of wanted to discuss. Uh, I, I came across. I, I read a lot of Cracked. Uh, the online magazine that uh, devolved from the original Mad Magazine knockoff, Cracked. Um, I read a lot of their articles. I always have. Uh, they seem to have a pretty good handle on pop culture. They do. Uh, and, and more to the point, they have a thing that they do called uh, Photoplasty, or Pictofact, which is basically like memes. It's like they memeify news and articles and listicles and things like that. And so I, I go through and read a bunch of those. Um, specifically looking for things that interest me. And I came across an article, and like I said, I wasn't sure if I needed to, to credit uh, Cracked with it, but with as often as I've, I've pulled from Cracked articles for this very podcast, I would be remiss in my duty if I did not. So, uh, this is from a Cracked article I read a long time ago, and I came back upon it the other day, uh, discussing uh, design tricks used behind famous video games. And once you see them, you can't unsee them. Now, Jim and I are both very, very avid video game players across Terrific. all genres, across all uh, console generations. I mean, 
just before we fired up the podcast, I was organizing the video game consoles that just randomly sit on my desk. Um, I've got six Game Boy Micros and three 3DSs that just live on a portion of my desk because I like to display them. They're pretty. Um, it's what I collect now. I collect the handhelds specifically now. Uh, in addition, I always have uh, two of the replicate cabinets from uh, uh, shout out Shiloh Prychek with New Wave Toys. Uh, I always have some of their latest and greatest on my desk as well. That's just how I do. Um, and then I realized about my all my handhelds that are on the desk that I actually use are all dead, so I had to charge them all. Which is always a task of finding like 16 different charge cables at any given time. But, I mean, suffice it to say that video games are a very important part of my fandom and my nerdery and Jim's as well. Just looking behind Same. Jim where I can see just a, t- a tower of arcade, a ziggurat of varying sized arcade cabinets uh, sitting right behind him. And so it's something we enjoy. It's something we enjoy talking about. So I found this this article and I sent it to Jim and I'm like, hey, there's a lot in this article that we can discuss because there's a lot of little tips and tricks that you have to employ when making uh, a video game uh, either to save space and economize on that or to save money or to save time or to game the system to trick people into thinking something is something that it's not and i find that really interesting jim what do you think about that idea yeah i mean especially when you talk about the kind of vintage video games that you and i really enjoy uh which you know vintage is a weird wobbly timey-wimey term to use because (laughs) anything that's old in the current generation is kind of looked at as being vintage but um some of these games that we just loved as kids and young adults were made on shoestring budgets and with memory capacity that you find more in your coffee makers and calculators now. These guys were able to get blood out of rocks and squeeze magic out of incredibly limited resources, both for money and processor and memory and all these kind of just all these things. So we're not saying that they were cutting corners, but in some cases they found some really, really clever ways to maximize what they were able to do with the resources they had available. Right. And they were things that were so successful that we didn't notice them. And mm-hmm. years later, people are doing like dumps of the code and digging through things, or the, the emulation thing is a big deal now. You and I both get into that. Um, but to kind of look back at these games and kind of, oh, so that's how they pulled that out. Um, they still do that even now. I mean, even with the current generation of games, there's always... Whatever corner you can cut that'll make things a little bit easier on your resources and make the game flow that much more smoothly. Like a modern example is uh, in the God of War games, um, which uh, you know are, are pretty modern. They, the God of War 2018 came out on the PlayStation 4, and the newest one came out on PS4 as well as PS5. I played it on PS5. You're working through these games as well. But they're very famous, the God of War games, for not having any loading screens. Loading screens were the bane of our existence in the 90s when CD Media first came out to try and use, um, you know, like the PlayStation stuff or even like the old cartridge games. Sometimes when your character transitioned to a new area or when something interesting or big happened, you'd see the loading screen because the computer had to have enough time to be able to pull in the resources to display the environment and the characters properly. Um, and it was kind of the bane of the existence of a lot of people, like famously, like in the original Resident Evil, anytime they had to load between areas, there'd be kind of a lengthy, creaky animation that lasted a couple seconds of a door opening because they had to kind of load the game behind the scenes. But God of War, the developers, um, found a way to make it so that there weren't any noticeable or visible loading screens. 
Um, and games have been doing this for a couple of years now. Um, like the uh, the Mass Effect games, anytime that you got into an elevator, they'd have some some conversation. The elevator would stretch on for you know 15, 20 seconds. That was the game loading the next environment, so it would appear right. seamlessly when you opened up to it. And even God of War will use certain tricks when they do that. Like there's uh, sometimes your character has to crouch and squeeze through a little tunnel or a canopy of trees that are very low to the ground or even get on a train car and transition from one mining area to the next in a certain level. And that's the game loading something in the background. But it is seamless and you don't notice it because loading screens have been such an annoyance for gamers for a while. Right. They still pull these tricks out once in a while, but going back and looking at these old games and being able to notice 15, 20, or even 30 years on that, oh... That was how they did that, and it's just interesting to see how they pulled some of these tricks off. And the first game I want to really talk about is a game, one of the first games that I spent any great deal of time playing, and this kind of relates to what you were just saying with the load screen, Super Mario Brothers, the original Super Mario Brothers on the NES. Um, yeah. It was one of the first games that I spent any great deal of time playing, and I remember I played it in the arcade when I first hit, hit on that game. It's, well, exactly. it's a classic. That was that was the game we played when we got the system because we only had like that Duck Hunt and, and what is that World Class Track Meet, and uh, so what came with it was what we had for a while. But um, load <laughs> screens on on Mario, the load screens are hidden behind that black screen that comes up, shows you how many Marios you have left, and tells you what world you're on. World 1-2, it's up there for about two or three seconds while it loads from memory that next level. And you never think about it, but then you die, it goes back to that screen, ostensibly to show you how many characters you have left, but it's really to load you back to the beginning of that level. And you don't think mm-hmm. about these things unless you actively think about these things. And just like this article talks about, once you think about it, you can't unhear it, you can't unsee it, you can't un experience this weird glitch this weird matrix glitch but super mario brothers like i said was one of the first games that i spent any great deal of time on we had the strategy guides and we did all that. like and, and it, it nintendo boggles, power magazine boggles no we had a dedicated strategy guide for this game it boggles oh, yeah. my mind that i needed it for the original super mario but it had all the maps everything laid out exactly so you could find out where to avoid and where to jump and all this stuff and and games like now the 100-hour epics, the strategy mm-hmm. guides are like phone books now, which is why I don't think they print money strategy guides anymore. It's all internet-based now. but You just look it up on uh, the internet, can't get through that section, you Google it, and there it is. Yep. But there were a couple of tips and tricks that they used in the Super Mario series specifically that, that really kind of uh, amused me. And The first one I'd ever learned about that was uh, when you're in Mario, like say, say for instance World 1-1, the bricks on the ground, the blue sky in the background, the clouds in the air, and the bushes on the ground as you run along, hopping on Goombas, and, and, and jumping and breaking bricks, right? What you don't realize unless you think about it, and unless you look hard at it, is that these bushes on the ground are the exact same sprites as the clouds. The exact yep. same, colored differently. Mamma mia! And I didn't start working and realizing that until... Uh, I when I was doing the the bead work, the uh, the pixelated bead work that I do, uh, occasionally, I was uh, like perler art. Mm-hmm. I've got several in my living room that I created. It big, huge pieces of perler art that I made. 
but while I was searching for these Perler art patterns, and you go through a lot of 8-bit sprites, because I do it to create 8-bit sprites and to make uh, recreations of, of video games, characters and scenes from video games, and that's just what I enjoy doing. It's a huge marketplace. It's a huge uh, hobby. People do it all the time. Uh, just go to any Comic-Con and you'll see Perler art everywhere. But it's one of those tricks that I learned. It's like you look at this artwork, you look at these, these sprite patterns, and you realize, yeah, the the sprites for the clouds are the exact same sprites as the ones for the bushes. Just aimed a little higher or a little lower, depending on color differently. Color swapped. And that kind of threw me off. And I'm like, oh! Because once again, once you see that, you cannot unsee that. Yeah, Mario was such a huge, huge world for the time. They squeezed so many levels onto this cartridge that barely held anything. Yeah. They had to cut every single corner that they possibly could. Like uh, another example from that same game are the Goombas. One of the first enemies, I think even the first enemy you encounter, the little mushroom dudes whose heads you got to jump on and squash them flat. Um, they were animated to be walking back and forth, but it was actually the same sprite and it was just flipped back and forth mirrored. It was the mm -hmm. same sprite, took up no space, um, and in order to, to, to give the appearance of walking with one foot in front of the other, they would take the sprite and just flip it back and forth so it appeared to be walking. It's stuff like right. that. That, you know, the, the, this, the, the Goombas look like they're walking, but they're one sprite. The bushes and the, um, uh, the, the clouds are the same thing. They're just sort of color swapped. And this was a practice that went on for a long, long time. I don't want to get too, too ahead of things here. we got some other things we want to get to before this. But, like, even in the early days of, like, Mortal Kombat, which was one of the first games that used, like, these rotoscoped, photography-based sprites. Right. Um, you had what they called palette swaps. Uh, in the earliest versions of Mortal Kombat, Sub-Zero and Scorpion were the same character, but one was blue and one was yellow. Sub-Zero wins fatality. Yeah, it even became a thing with them, with... Uh... Because then there was smoke and and and, and reptile and, and reptile and yeah, yeah they all it was all just like a rainbow palette of the same fucking character. Incidentally, uh, to cap off uh, Super Mario Brothers, Shigeru Miyamoto, the creator of Super Mario Brothers, has come out and said that there was a reason that he did uh, the first level one one the way he did. Um, the reason that the Goomba is the first enemy that you see is kind of uh, that game's version of. A, uh, a tutorial because the Goomba resembles so closely the mushroom sprite and they're basically the same fucking sprite one has legs one doesn't one's colored differently um, but there's a reason that they look like mushrooms because he wanted you to jump on these characters because that's your only weapon in the Super Mario Brothers game until you get the fire flower jumping on an enemy is your weapon and so he wanted players to attack this character and kind of instilled in them the 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 need to attack these characters and make it kind of have to when they see the power up mushroom have to attack it as well and then be pleasantly surprised with the fact that oh that, that's actually beneficial i shouldn't do that but a little trickery from miyamoto there and i thought that was great um so that's super mario brothers that's i mean like i said one of the foremost earliest games that i can remember uh, dumping in a more inordinate amount of time into so. Well, next up on the list is um, early games, especially in the end of the cartridge era and the beginning of like the CD era. They were starting to be able to put more impressive effects into the games, yes. and uh, we started to be able to notice things like mirrors, like uh, Duke Nukem when he would walk into a bathroom, which there were quite a few of those because Duke Nukem is very juvenile. There's a lot of bathroom humor. You would oh. see Duke Nukem in the mirror. 
And you would assume something like, well, the, the game is just using some kind of mirror effect. It must be an easy thing to do. It's, it's a mirror. We all know how mirrors work. But no. What was going on was the game had to render an entirely separate mirror version of the room you were in. And the version of you you saw in the mirror was essentially you mimicking all your movements. They just had to create a clone of that character and create a whole nother room beyond what looked like the mirror to, uh, to, to create that mirror effect. It was essentially doubling the environment, flipping it around, and making whoever was appearing in the mirror exactly mimic whatever was appearing on the other side of the mirror. Which is interesting. You'd think it'd be easier to just make a reflection, but, you know, developers, they we get into the code the and they start digging around. Time. and yeah. yeah, they have to do things the way they have to do them if they want to create a certain effect, and that was the way they achieved that one. That's actually really funny because we were just talking about how they, uh, like they sprite-flipped the, uh, the Goombas to simulate walking because they're trying to save space save that animation space but here we've got the exact opposite in order to achieve a desired effect they've gone and basically doubled their workload if not more because then you have to have the code that makes it mirror that do the the polar opposite of what you're doing so you have to create double the work and double the layout and double the mapping and rendering and all that to achieve this just to get that effect effect but it, i mean it was well done it was well well done yeah big time it, it was and, and like i said it's, it's really cool to see that they go through this effort to make something appear a certain way because it's what they had to do at the time so you see down to this necessity being the mother of all inventions now talking about duke nukem actually in duke nukem 3d uh the big selling point was this depth of field this three-dimensionality but in fact, uh, Duke Nukem wasn't really 3D. Uh, and according to this article, it says, In games based on the build engine, maps are made up of 2D sectors with different floors and ceiling heights, sometimes sloped. Um, tricks are used to overcome the limitations of this and to be inconspicuously teleported somewhere else in the map uh, to land in a lower room. For example... You could just fall down a shaft or whatever. Um, being able to trick your brain into thinking there's depth of field when there's in fact not. And they actually, there's another example on this list of them talking about uh, manipulating people into thinking there's depth of field. And they've been doing this for anim with animation for years. Uh, when they have a background that moves and a foreground that doesn't. A character on a foreground animation moving... Uh, the background moving in a different direction gives it that depth of field. Uh, they talk about, uh, uh, in specific, I'm talking about Moon Patrol, game from 1982. I played a lot of that on the old uh, uh, Commodore 64 back in the day, which shows you yeah, how old same. I am. Um, the, uh, the background moves slower, the foreground moves faster, and it's like on three different panes. You got the blue pane in the background, the green pane in the middle. And then the orange plane up front where your character sprites at. Uh, and they all move at different speeds so that when you're uh, sandwiched together, it looks like you're moving in different depth of field and you're moving in different speeds and you're moving at different rates than everything else. It gives you that depth. It gives you that feeling of, oh, there's something back there. When in reality, it's a painting moving slightly faster or slightly slower. Yeah. And that's an old-school animation trick. Like, if you watch anybody from Warner Brothers or Disney back in the day, which in this case was a Wednesday, uh, they, they were able to create layers by hand-painting art onto glass panels or by doing cells, animation cells. 
and they could uh, they could trick you into thinking that there was a depth of, of field by moving the background slightly slower than the foreground because the foreground looks like it's moving faster because you're closer to it. So understanding how the human eye perceives movement in a 3D space, they were able to both in classic animation and then in later in video games to create this effect that just had layers that moved at different speeds to make it look like you were standing closer or further away from something. It's pretty right, effective. A trickery like that is super, super effective. It's super, super cool because we've been seeing that in animation for years, but it's only been, you know, last couple decades we've been able to incorporate animation tricks like that into our video games. And uh, it, it's really cool to see as the video game uh, uh, community grows and as the, the technology improves and increases how much more photorealistic this stuff becomes because of tricks like this. I mean, I dick around a lot with uh, VR. Um, and, and of course the whole selling point on VR is that depth, that background yeah. movement, that immersion. And uh, these are just the earliest portions of the immersion that, that pull you in and, and it's been going on for years and the technology improves and gets better and, and changes over time. But really, uh, we're going to keep finding ways to emulate what our eyeballs see on a day to day basis. It's just really cool to see how they do it. Yeah, now this next one is kind of an interesting thing to me too because it's it's a very classic Bob Ross happy accident. I mean, not necessarily <laughs> that it's painting like we talked about before, but but we all remember Goldeneye. Goldeneye yes. on the Nintendo 64 was one of the classic era-defining and certainly console-defining games. I've been playing um, not that again the, on the Xbox. They yeah, just released that. Yeah, came out on Game Pass. I've been playing a little bit of it too, and it's a, it's a real nostalgia blast. Uh, but um, <laughs> the thing about like, Goldeneye my is... My daughter's that, like, why does that guy look like that? I'm like, because that's what because they looked like the back 90s. in the day. <laughs> that's how that we looked. thought those were good graphics when we were in high school. Shut up. It was um, baller. Yeah, it was. And it was a great game. Even you know, It still holds up. I mean, it looks a little dated, obviously, but it still holds up. But and another, another reason, I think, that, that, that GoldenEye became a genre-defining game is because of what we now know to be couch co-op. Um, it was a game where you could kind of sit around with your friends and you could play this competitive multiplayer. You're trying to murder each other. And it was just really, really fun. But it's not really done that much anymore to the point where couch co-op is kind of it's considered its own genre, even if it doesn't necessarily, even if it fits into another uh, genre that kind of defines it largely in terms of style. To the point where now games like Rocket League or A Way Out or It Takes Two are all kind of always mentioned in the same breath because it is such a rare mechanic. But at the time, we had a lot of couch co-op and... Uh, even if people don't know the term, they've certainly played GoldenEye against their friends. Or um, Halo. Slappers or only. Like that. Yeah. yeah. No odd job and all that kind of stuff. But the the couch co-op mode that came to define GoldenEye as being the, the classic game that it was, um, was not something that was planned. Yeah. According to this cracked article, the multiplayer mode that defined GoldenEye 007 for many was created on the sly. The game was already running behind on the schedule, so the devs knew they'd never get permission from the higher-ups at Nintendo and Rare. They just did it in like a month and added it to the code right before the cartridges came out. So hmm. this mode that we all know and love from this game was almost an afterthought, and it came to define a generation in many ways. Yeah, and uh, I mean, like you said, it was it was the first and, and most amazing example of people sitting around and party gaming. Like, you know, you can do that with like, uh, Mario Kart or things like that, and and, and Mario Party, fun. yeah. But I mean, this kind of defined an era. I mean, we still do that now with like your modern warfare's or your 
you're at. But I mean, even that now is kind of like in your own environment. You play online, but it's different when you were offline and didn't have a choice. That's when you had to gather, you know, four or five friends in the living room or uh, link together two systems and, and do it yourselves. This is what we had. That's what we had to do. And yeah, Goldeneye absolutely set the standard for that. Nice to see that happy little accidents happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Um, did you know, Jimothy, that most first-person shooter games don't render or visualize the bullets? I didn't know that. You uh, know, I, it makes <laughs> sense. The picture that they use to describe this is actually pretty funny, too, because it comes from the game Super Hot, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, and it's super hot specifically, they absolutely render the bullets because the whole object is to dodge the bullets or to pluck them out of the air or to slice them with a knife and like go all John Wick, uh, uh, Keanu Reeves, Matrix Kung Fu on this shit. I know Kung Fu. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. Um, but since the weapon hits the target almost instantaneously, any bullet that comes from the weapon would not be visible and therefore it's unnecessary to show it and or go through the the troublesome mechanics and 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 additional expenditure of hardware time and space and money and all of that to render these things so instead these games calculate the trajectory to where the bullet would hit uh, if fired from a certain position so it's basically a lot of math it just goes hey but uh, gun pointed position a hits target position b you know, that's oversimplification, obviously, but um, the calculation is far more simpler and faster than the calculations that would be needed to render a bullet, which makes sense. Uh, this technique is called hit scanning. And I didn't even think of that. You never think about the fact that you don't see the bullets because you're the one behind the gun most of the time. You see, like, the smoke or the fire coming from the muzzle. You see, you feel the hit. If you get hit with a bullet, you feel it. But nine times out of ten, you're right. You don't remember seeing that bullet. Unless it's something cartoony like in that... Um, what's that game I've been, I played a little bit of? That uh, Squanch Games... Uh, oh, I forget Justin Rowland game? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I forget what Less it's Less said about it, the better. Oh, High on Life. Um, yeah, that's the one. Uh, I remember... Because the bullets are just so cartoonishly like globs of whatever the fuck being fired from this live-action gun. Uh, which is really uh, a throwback to uh, to this uh, Oddworld Stranger's Wrath, which is one of my favorite games of all time. I love the Oddworld series. But yeah, you never really think about the fact that you don't see the bullet, that you only feel the bullet, as it were. Unless yeah. there, unless it's a specific mechanic, like we said in Superhot, where seeing the bullet is necessity is a necessity for the it's game. It's part play. of the experience. Right. So I found that one actually pretty intriguing. I never really thought about that. Yeah. Now, this next one I think is fun, too, because it's always neat when a glitch... When you can turn a bug into a feature. When something isn't necessarily intended, but they look at it and they go, you know what, that actually is kind of cool. And in this case, it wasn't just one that they kept in the game, but it was one that influenced other devs going forward to incorporate it as something that you could do intentionally. Uh, the developers of Onimusha Warlords noticed that a glitch in the game, enemies could be launched in the air and juggled with sword strikes. <laughs> the glitch then became a famous feature in Devil May Cry, and it's one that's continued. The juggle combo, where you can sort of knock an enemy into the air and then keep them in the air by by striking them with a certain attack and a certain 
pattern or tempo or timing. Um, even as recently as the God of War game that I just finished maybe a couple of months ago featured juggle combos that you could unlock and employ and to keep the enemy in the air helpless while you just sort of like knocked him around in midair and ragged all and, the shit uh, up. Yeah. The, the juggle combo is a, a very well understood game mechanic now, but it first showed up as a fuck up in Onimusha Warlords. Combo Breaker! Yeah, it's one of the most fun things you can do. I mean, it's not fun when it happens to you. Like, I'm having uh, a little bit of trouble with uh, Horizon Forbidden West right now because there are certain attacks that are very powerful that you have to kind of charge up. You hold the button for a couple of seconds, and then you let go of the attack, whether it's a ranged attack where you kind of got to draw a bow to full strength, or like the charged spear attack where you kind of crouch down and you got to wait a couple seconds for your spear to light up, and then you unleash this big sweeping knockdown combo. The, the devs on that game infuriatingly made the choice that there are certain combos that the, uh, the enemies that you're fighting... They, they take the exact same amount of time to charge up as yours, and if you start doing them at around the same time, you let them go at the same time, and the enemy's combo will land eight times out of ten rather than yours. Your combos can be interrupted. And while that's more realistic in a way, like if you were sitting there like winding up your fist to punch somebody and they pop you in the face with a jab, in real life that would suck, but it would be something that you could do. But most games, if they give you a special attack that requires a certain amount of wind-up, they at least let you see it through. Um, Horizon from Midden West doesn't actually give you that much consideration. You charge up your attack and the enemy can go, ah, no. And they can get you right before you, you manage to squeeze it off. So that's frustrating. But, I always um, hated that. It's, I, it's fun when you, you get can do trapped it. in a combo and you like, or if you're like playing someone like Mortal Kombat and they're button mashing and they just trap you in a corner and it's like, yeah. Fuck, I can't move. Sweep the leg. Sweep the leg. Sweep, 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 sweep the leg. Yeah. You should always, as a video game protagonist, feel slightly more powerful than whatever you're up against, just to give you that edge. And, um, yeah, the devs at Horizon Forbidden West at Guerrilla Games did not uh, did not see fit to give you that particular conceit to suspend that disbelief in that way. And I'm just finding it frustrating. The amount of times I just swear at my television because I've wound up an attack and I let it go and it gets interrupted mid-swing, it's just a pain in the ass. But, you know, you, you work around it, you find ways to get through. Right, and so like, yeah. What would what would these games be like if that wasn't a mechanic? They would change, like fighting games. It would change, like you said, yeah. certainly Onimusha and and all these other games that now employ that Devil May Cry. That was or Bayonetta. Bayonetta is the same way. It's just keeping opponents in the air off guard. Uh, what's that game you had me try recently? Uh, the, the Evil West. No, the uh, the musical game. Oh, uh, Hi Fi Rush. Hi-Fi Rush, right. My kids, incidentally, love the shit out of that game. Maria, in particular, has been playing the hell yeah. out of that. Um, but yeah, that's the same thing. Your job is to trap these opponents in in, in this combo flurry that they can't get out of until they're eliminated. And, you know, that's it's it's become, like you said, not a bug. It's a feature. Yeah. Um, looking into games of the uh, Bethesda series, like I like to do, with Fallout and with Elder Scrolls, uh, of course, I've never been shy to admit that uh, Skyrim is one of the games I've dumped the most amount of time in my entire life into. Uh, I love Skyrim. I've had like three or four go-throughs at about 115 hours apiece. Uh, so, so fair to say that I've put my time in with that game. Uh, the developers on Skyrim uh, worked around the idea that their animations can't do the AI can't do ladders. Ladders are just too intensive mechanically to make it convincing. 
to make the AI handle ladders because you'd see them staggering up a ladder or staggering down. You can't see them convincingly moving up and down. So what the developers did, they simply omitted it altogether. They just don't have ladders. Uh, as the main character attempts to climb a ladder, you pop into a load screen. Similar to what we talked about with the, uh, the Resident Evil load screen where it just pops you into a door, you know? Yep. And that's... <laughs> You don't really realize why they've done that until you know that that's why they did that. It's economy of space. It's economy of animation. It's it's to make it look better and more immersive. Because if you saw someone herky-jerking up a ladder, it would take you right out of it. And of course, I'm not saying that yeah. Bethesda games don't have their fair share of, of graphical glitches and things like that. They, Famously, they, they do. do. Uh, T-poses and phasing through walls and whatever the hell else. Entire but, chunks uh, of buildings not rendering properly. Yeah, we've, right. we've all played Bethesda games, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're kind of famous for that to the point where when I went to E3 in 2011, I um, uh, took a picture of the Bethesda booth and I said, uh, yeah, this is the Bethesda booth. And uh, even though the, the particular kiosk they've set up in keeps collapsing every 11 minutes, they just rebuild it and everyone seems to like it anyway. <laughs> That'd be great. Just make that a, 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 a in-person thing. Uh, but also in Skyrim, uh, in particular, another little tricky uh, dev trick was uh, these little uh, tables that you see throughout the game are positioned just so, but they're not tables. They're actually full-on shelves. They just sink it into the floor to make it look like a table. So it's the same graphic, but you're just getting the top half. They cheat a lot like that to use one yeah. thing to, to simulate another thing and... Uh, because if one thing looks close enough, why bother making two animations for it or two uh, right. cells for it, you know? Well, and speaking of Bethesda sinking things into the floor, um, <laughs> in Fallout 3, uh, they did this thing where there were trains that had to move. And rather than try to render a train yeah. that sat on a track, what they did was they created an NPC that sat just below the level of the track and gave him a train that was a hat. And then to get the train to move, they had the NPC moving underneath the floor, clipped through the floor, moving around uh, with this train as a hat, and the NPC was just mapped to move along the general path of the track. Right, because you could map so, an NPC shit, to walk a course. Right. Yeah. And that was easier than, than apparently uh, somebody came up at the workaround. Well, we could code this train to move along, or we could just give an NPC a hat and sink them below the floor and have them walk the track where the track would go. And that's what they went with, because it was just easier to do it that way. And if you haven't seen the picture of this, it's absolutely ludicrous. Check it out sometime. Go to uh, Google Image Search and just type in uh, Fallout Train Hat. And I'm absolutely... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google that real quick just to see if that actually pops up. Well, I don't, we'll make Before that the I thumbnail of this episode. <laughs> so if you go to Google Image Search, type in Fallout Train Hat. And it's the most ridiculous picture you'll ever see. It's just a dude standing there in a field with uh, a, an enormous train car stuck to his head. And it's it's funny as hell. And uh, I, I just, I love the idea that this is how this stuff works. So, Google that, you won't be sorry. It's absolutely hilarious. So, uh, another trick that the devs have used, um, when you're facing a lot of enemies, uh, generally only two or three of them will be attacking actively at a time. Usually you're like, oh, thank God, because there are like 16 enemies attacked me all at once. It would be chaos, and 
I wouldn't be able to break combos. I wouldn't be able to get out of that. We've all seen that in movies where like a group of bullies is just standing around kicking the piss out of someone and they can't get a moment to break out of it. Or the other thing happens where you've got your hero like your Bruce Lee or your Jackie Chan in the center of a group of attackers and the guys who aren't currently kicking or punching him are kind of dancing around the perimeter of the circle waiting their turn. Right, the rest will just sort of stand there and uh, sometimes fire a, a weapon in your general direction, but they're kind of uh, hands-off until it's their turn. Uh, this AI behavior is called unit slotting. There are a limited number of slots of enemies that will attack the player at any given time. Uh, this behavior is pre-programmed into the game to make gamers feel good about themselves for taking on such large groups of quote-unquote difficult enemies. Now that's just... that makes sense. Because, like I said, it'd be sheer chaos if everything attacks you all at once. I mean, not every game wants to be Dark Souls. Not every game wants to be Elden Ring. Uh, you gotta well, wait your turn. Don't. Thank God, I just I'd rage quit everything. But, so, like, playing, like, Assassin's Creed. You'll have, like, three or four guys hitting you at once. The rest of them kind of wait until you eliminate a two, one or two of them. Then they move in to fill those slots. But, yeah, so slotting. Enemy slotting. I think that's a very interesting way to look around it. Uh, another interesting one that was, uh, we talked a lot about depth of field earlier. A cool thing that, uh, with photorealistic games, uh, the older ones specifically, uh, use, they use photorealistic textures on 3D models to give you the illusion of depth and detail on what are actually flat surfaces. Um, what it will do is it just kind of staggers the plane to make it look thicker and more I mean, Google Earth does this, too. If you've ever looked at Google Earth, and they kind of extrapolate yeah. what a building looks like from two dimensions to three dimensions from their pictures, uh, it kind of does the same thing, gives you a rough building shape, or, you know, um, what this does is it helps reduce the number of polygons that are needed to create a visually interesting model, which results in less workload for the game to render it. And, and, and with a lot of these games, that's the big get. Because uh, the reason a lot of these games run at suboptimal frames per second, which FPS, which is one of the things that uh, gamers look at when they're playing the games, when they're building these beefy computers, or when they're buying these next-gen systems, FPS is one of the big things that people look at. Because what you're trying to find is how many frames per second does this game consistently run. And there's a lot of games that'll run at a pretty decent clip. 60 is about the best you can get at any given time. 60 is considered optimal like there are games that run and systems that run uh higher than that and that's where it starts to get insanely fast but most hardware 60 is acceptable 60 is where you want to be uh but you'll yeah. find games especially in these older games and that's why a lot of people have problems going back and playing retro games like playing the old mortal Kombat or playing the old street fighter games or things like that because they move so slowly like 10 frames per second, 15 frames per second, 24 frames per second. They move so much slower than our eyes are accustomed to seeing these things move. And a lot of the reason is for that is for hardware limitations. Because they're spending so much time and, and effort rendering these graphics to make them look as good as possible that you're going to take a dip. That's why when you go into your... your what are, what are people playing? They play Fortnites or whatever else they play on these stupid, uh, really these kids fast today systems. With their Minecrafts and their Fortnites. Well, Minecraft specifically doesn't count because the graphics in that game just don't change. But uh, no, but don't. depth rendering does. 
how much you yes. see changes and that's still the same principle because the oftentimes the more uh, depth of field that you render the slower the game is going to run because it's having to work harder Whereas and that's one of those things that, like, I remember years and years ago, like, playing games like um, uh, Pole Position, where you're, you know, it's, they call it Mode 7 now, I guess, where the 2D background runs underneath you, and it's not really 3D, but they kind of create the illusion of, of being 3D. Right. There's mountains in the background of that game that are in what they call the skybox, the background rendering that you're never going to get closer to it, because it's not possible for you to do that, given the limitations of the technology of the time. But it was one of those things that... For years, I mean, and I had this thought too when I was a, a young gamer playing things on Atari and Nintendo. You know, someday games are going to be, they're, they're advancing by leaps and bounds. They're going to have these great technological advances to the point where if I see mountains in the background, I'll be able to go to those mountains. And Todd Howard, in a, uh, a Bethesda keynote at some point, very early on in the development of Skyrim, so we're talking maybe, you know, 15 years ago now, and it hurts my heart to say that, but Skyrim came out in 2011, and it's now 2023, and it was in development for a few years. But he uh, gave a presentation, and very famously, it's been referenced quite a bit, said, hey, if you're playing this game and you see a mountain in the background, you're going to be able to walk to that mountain and, and climb it, and there's going to be shit on top of it, you know? It's just one of those things that gamers have wanted for a very long time, to not have these unreachable skyboxes of flat backgrounds, but to have fully rendered environments that you can look at something, and if you can see it way off in the distance, you can go to it and interact with it. And uh, that's uh, fairly recent, two or three generations ago. Um... Skyrim famously first came out on the uh, Xbox 360 and and PS3, 2? I don't know. It was one of those, like a, a fifth or sixth generation game, and we're on the seventh or eighth now. I can't really keep track. But it was one of those things that was a, a gamer wish fulfillment sort of deal. I see that mountain. I want to go to that mountain and climb the mountain and see what's on top of it. And Open modern world. games within the last couple of years, yeah, they've made that possible in a really big way. Right, and I think that's one of the things I really liked about like Breath of the Wild and things like that, because... Nintendo's yeah. doing the same thing, doing open world, and I think Sonic Frontiers is doing that now. I haven't picked that one up yet, but I really kind of want to. Um, but uh, yeah, interesting stuff. A couple more I want to hit on before we, we take off today. Uh, world of Warcraft, not a game I've played any time into. I'm just going to say that outright. Uh, same, I don't really play MMOs. I'm not a big fan of the MMORPG series, but, I mean, Warcraft is one of the biggest franchises in the world. So it would be for good reason to talk about like it. That. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, world of Warcraft developers used invisible, untargetable bunny rabbits as targets for Box Onyxia to attack during fights against her. And now think about this. Uh, while you were busy trying to defeat this insane boss, she was programmed... To not even attack you. Just these little bunny rabbits you didn't even know were there. But she still managed to die. And that's kind of a fun thing. Because if you don't have these giant... Like if we look at things like Final Fantasy. Uh, where you got like a an animation of a character attacking. Like, you know, Cloud runs over with his giant sword and whack, whack, whack. At a, at a static animation or at a barely moving animation. Until it's that characters turn to move and do the attack they're pretty much static that saves on rendering that saves on animation that saves on a lot of things it's very uh indicative of that whole rpg genre and so it stands to reason that warcraft would employ the same type of tricks so if you don't need to have this boss uh flailing about and running around and clawing and striking 
You can have invisible little things doing the work for you that require far less CPU power to generate. So I find that interesting because uh, players didn't know they were getting defeated by tiny invisible rabbits. Well, that's no ordinary rabbit. That's the most foul, cruel, and bad-tempered rodent you ever set eyes on. Yeah. With big, sharp, pointy teeth. Extra players haven't entered the game. Um, there's a game that came out on the, I want to say it was the Super Nintendo. So it's getting up there in age, but it's a game that so is still we. kind of whispered in, yeah, there you go. Just because something's vintage doesn't mean it isn't good. Um, but it's a game that I never played, but it's one that kind of still to this day gets whispered about in hushed tones because there was not apparently anything else has come out that's been quite like it. It was a game called Earthbound. Oh, and a lot of people played this game and loved this game and it was really interesting. I don't honestly know much about it, but part of the reason, apparently, yeah, yeah, a good part of the reason, as I understand why it was so legendary, is this game was able to do things within the context of the story and the gameplay that nobody's ever really tried to do before or since, and part of that, as people have years later kind of dug into the code and and poked around and tried to figure out where the, the building blocks of it are, they found some really strange, like, alien, weird, we don't really know what the hell is going on pieces of coding, like, for instance... This cracked article says Earthbound's text system is a complex scripting language that's barely comprehensible even to modern programmers. The text system used in Earthbound isn't just your run-of-the-mill alphabet. Hidden beneath the simple sentences you see on screen is a widely complicated and expansive scripting language that even after more than 20 years since Earthbound was released hasn't been fully mapped out. The system is so advanced it not only controls most of the programming, text, music, cutscenes, user input, but is powerful enough to be converted into an emulator Theoretically making the game able to play itself. And as a sort of offshoot of that, there was a, a famous NPC in that game uh, called the Pizza Man. And I'm not really sure because I didn't play it what his role was or, or what it did. But people have been able to remark upon, upon, no matter where you are in this game, the Pizza Man, the delivery pizza, is able to find you. Pizza time. Ever wondered how the pizza delivery man in Earthbound always manages to get to you? He has his own <laughs> pathfinding <laughs> algorithm. He moves like a real character with the ability to solve almost any maze to get to the player character without running into dead ends. This type of programming was pretty incredible in 1994, and yet it wasn't used for any enemies. Only one NPC, the Pizza Delivery Man. So whoever the developers were on Earthbound, and again, I, I, I should have probably looked into that before we got here, um, <laughs> but that game has always been kind of this game that people talk about as like being wholly unique. Nothing really has been like it since, and... and um, yeah, not really sure what's going on with that game, but apparently neither is anybody else. <laughs> I, I've not played a lot of Earthbound. It's it's on my list to eventually tackle, especially with uh, the uh, retro gaming that I do. So it's it's available to me. It's 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 on the list, but that list is large, very large. Um, yep. Never Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy fine. has been a franchise forever uh, since the old NES. I remember playing Final Fantasy One. Which is really funny because I remember Square apparently didn't have any money left and they were going to fold as a studio so they put all the resources, energy, time, money, and passion into a game called Final Fantasy thinking it would be the game that was the, they're going to be their swan song, the last thing they ever put out there. Their Final Fantasy, yeah. And it wound up being so popular that um, it sold really well and so now we're on what, like Final Fantasy 84 or whatever it is? Something like that. funny. Funny how things work out. Final Fantasy the Next Generation? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Final Fantasy Strange New Worlds? Oh wait, that's Star Trek. Final Fantasy Tactics, Final Fantasy everything. Uh, But Final Fantasy's Peninsula of Power, back in the original Final Fantasy game, 
which is east of Provoca, is one of the nastiest glitches you can ever find in this franchise. Now, the world map is invisibly divided into grids where uh, the enemies are appropriately uh, portioned out to your skill level. Um, but the squares in this grid on this peninsula of power, as they've quoted it calling it, um, overlap accidentally. Uh, and it corresponds to a spot that you shouldn't be at for a very long time. And so the foes that jump into this one tiny little spot in the game are ridiculously hard for your character at that point. Because uh, you're not supposed to be there yet. Um, but, as gamers are wont to do, they don't take that as lying down. They go and take it as a challenge. And so people would go to this peninsula of power... Uh, and attack these creatures that are way out of their league. Uh, like the nerd hitting on the model at the bar. It's just out of their league, but they do it anyway. Uh, because they're looking for that extra experience points. You get more experience points the harder the enemy is. So if you're like a level 10, and you take out a level 100 bad guy, however you can, somehow. I'm sure eventually it happens. Uh, you get experience points ranked for a level 100. And that could vastly improve your situation. Uh, but this became uh, a feature over the franchise. Uh, there became points in these games that you can have this kind of uh, overlap that kind of gives you this uh, EXP bump if you are got the temerity to stand it. If you can stay in the ring and, and do this fighting, you can earn these extra points and I never took part in the Peninsula of Power. I'd have to give that a try. I have Final Fantasy on most systems that I've played, so it, it would be easy enough to pick up. So I'll have to look into that. And here's a thing that I have found interesting because it was something that got talked about a lot. This isn't on the cracked list, but I wanted to bring it up because it's kind of a famous thing. Um, Sid Meier's Civilization. Okay. It's been a long-running series. And in this game, you can play as world leaders, and you can pick a, a faction or a country, and then do what you can to kind of build up your country, interact with other countries. It's basically a world simulator, uh, which is pretty ambitious, but um, it's also pretty well-loved. I mean, a lot of gamers really love this thing. But something funny happened, and there's a lot of hair-splitting and questions about why this actually happened. One of the world leaders you can play as is Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, very famously, he was... Uh, an Indian leader um, for you know, the movie with Ben Kingsley was, I think he won an Oscar for that. But Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, as a, uh, a world leader, was very famously a pacifist. I mean, if you ask anybody to describe Gandhi and his philosophy in one word, it would be pacifism. He was very anti-war, really, was was very much on the you know peace and love tip and, and talking about how that was the only way to really move forward. And so in Civilization, if you played as Gandhi, that was kind of his whole thing. That um, right. you could play as a pacifist, and that was kind of the origin of the pacifist run that a lot of people kind of try and do now. Of I'm going to try and get through this game without killing any enemies, and it's become, in addition to speedrunning, kind of one of those things that gamers try to do in games that are, especially like Fallout and other like first-person shooters that are known for their violence in a way. <laughs> and there was a weird glitch, um, or it was rumored to be a glitch. It's, it's questionable now, based on some interviews that Sid Meier has done afterwards, but because Gandhi, the character had a stat in the game where his aggression level was set to zero, 
if there were any game states that caused the aggression level of Gandhi to go down, as there were like any of the world leaders, you could world events would either raise or, or lower their aggression level, depending on environmental factors or things that other players or other NPCs did. You could, you know, engage in, in uh, either aggression or uh, bellicosity or, or diplomacy to raise or lower the aggression levels of these world leaders. Well, because Gandhi's level was set to zero... If you did anything that lowered his uh, his aggression level, um, there's no place to go, given the game system, because he's already at, at nothing. So yes. flip back around, and you go to 99, and start dropping nukes <laughs> in everybody. I Gandhi feeling, would turn from a, I had a, feeling a, a pacifist. Yeah. He, 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 instead of becoming the peace and love guy, he would like flip all the way back around to just like the most aggressive character in the game and would start attacking and dropping nukes like crazy. And it was kind of seen as like a funny thing because obviously people know who Gandhi was and how very famously historically he was all about peace. So to see Gandhi going all red-eyed and rage-filled and gritting his teeth and dropping bombs on people, and yeah. that was theorized Beautiful. at least for a while to be the reason that happened. And uh, it, it became a, a feature in later games because it was one of those things that even pre-internet was remarked upon so much, like... You know, we, we turned Gandhi into a bomb drop and rage monster by lowering his aggression level, in, in theory. <laughs> but Sid Meier, the creator and, and head dev behind these games, has come out and said, wasn't really a glitch, wasn't really a bug. Uh, he didn't say whether it was intentional or not, but he did acknowledge that it was not... He was confusing about it. Um, I'm reading this from Game Rant. In his biography, Sid Meier addresses the bug and the logic behind how it occurs. The designer bluntly says that the rumor of the negative stat is not true, but made sure to confirm that Gandhi's behavior is indeed a bug. Meyer states that's why Gandhi is so prone to war. He's just one of those mysteries that it's almost fun to keep mysterious. While this confirmation from Meyer is likely the ending for the gaming anecdote, it isn't exactly surprising. So, he didn't really clear it up, but he didn't dispel it either. Right. Uh, uh, I don't know, man. I think it's funny. I really do. Yeah. Seeing Gandhi can, turning can, into a, uh, a, a complete butt kicker is... It's just hilarious. A Hulk on the world stage. Uh, last two that I want to kind of cover, and I'm going to cover them kind of quick, because we, as we do, we ramble on. As we bet. do, that's what we do. Uh, Donkey Kong 64 on the uh, Nintendo 64, obviously. You know what, you love it. One of those games that everyone knows specifically for the fact that if you have Nintendo 64, you could not play that without the expansion pack. The reason behind that the Donkey Kong 64 development team encountered a bug that would cause the game to crash and eventually discovered that using a memory expansion kept the crashes from occurring. So instead of fixing the code, which they could have easily done, I think they had printed out the game already, it was too far too late, uh, they just bundled a memory expansion pack with the game. Um, which uh, the article goes out to point out is uh, either very brilliant or just plain old lazy. Uh, and... Yeah, it could be a half a dozen of the other. Yeah. yeah. It could be either or, but the fact of the matter is, if you have to in include uh, like a jumper pack to kind of get past your, your glitches, uh, I'd say bug. I wouldn't say feature, but uh, I know. Yeah, but then uh, that allowed the uh, people who did development for the N64 to start creating games that could use these memory overruns to make right. games better, because a lot of people just had the expansion pack, and they would put on the outside of the box... Expansion pack recommended or expansion pack required, and then Nintendo ultimately was able to move more hardware. So, eh, kind of a win-win there, I guess. Absolutely, and and 
you know, even now in the secondary market, you want to find a Nintendo 64. Every time you pick up a Nintendo 64, you're like, ooh, does it got the expansion pack? Oh, it doesn't have the expansion pack. I got to go buy another one. Or, you know, ooh, it does have the expansion pack. We're good to go. And so I yeah. mean, that's kind of a thing that, that gamers, collectors look for uh, in their system. So one last thing I want to cover is uh, uh, the original NES. One of the key features of the original NES was the light zapper. That's one of my greatest regrets with being a retro gamer now is not having that CRT TV because, first of all, where do I put it? Uh, I will have one when I have a a dedicated gaming space. I will. Uh, And a lot of the collectors that I know have uh, a preference for old CRTs, Trinitron or whatever they're trying to collect, uh, that they consider the best of the best. But uh, the light zapper doesn't work with modern TVs. It works specifically on CRT-based and tube-based TVs. And there's a reason for that. This, uh, this entry in the article says, How does your NES know when you've hit a duck? Specifically in Duck Hunt. But ostensibly with all the light zapper games. Your zapper gun is equipped with a photodiode to detect light. So whenever you aim the gun and pull the trigger, the screen will go black for just a frame. Just a blip. If the zapper doesn't detect any light... It knows you're aiming at the screen. The next frame, a white rectangle flashes for the first target. If at this point the light is detected, then your aim has been true. After that, a different white rectangle flashes for the second target if necessary. So basically, your gun shines a light onto this black screen telling the game where you've hit. And, and in, that's in the days before motion controls and and and, and tricks like that. Um, it's interesting to see because these light zapper games, it's not just the Nintendo. It's uh, like Master System had it. Uh, we had the Super Scope, same basic concept. We have yep. all those arcade games, House of the Dead and, and all of that. They, they kind of rely on that same basic principle of light uh, being the thing that triggers it. And so it's interesting to see that the basic me- mechanic, a basic simple technique, is what gave you this effect that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. It's really neat to see these little systemic cheats that people come up with. I don't know. That was just one of the struggles. Yeah, what I find interesting about that too is that the, the, the whole CRT versus you know 4K HD monitor thing and how certain things work and certain things don't. It kind of I was thinking about this when you were talking about the Perler art earlier and the pixel art. Um, I read this interesting article that said all pixel art is basically based on a lie because we look at these like blocky pixels and they're, they're sort of reminiscent. They're sort of nostalgic in a way, but the thing is the reason why pixel based sprites works to begin with is because the scan lines on an original, uh, CRT television or monitor. Um, now we have a different way of rendering pictures and makes them sharper and makes them ostensibly better. But the, the scan lines on a CRT television were a little bit blurry. So game designers knew that, and they were able to create these pixel-based sprites knowing that the, the the CRT TVs being slightly smudgier during the air would round off the corners. So we're looking at these these characters that look like, to a modern eye, like they're built out of Legos to some degree. Right. Smaller and smaller Legos as time went on, as detail got better and processor power improved and memory went up. But right. still basically square pixels that the size of canned hams or Tic Tacs, or as you went on, just smaller and smaller pixels. But... Now they're made out of polygons and scan textures and whatnot, but for the time, pixel-based, sprite-based characters 
uh, the developers counted on you playing on those on a certain kind of TV that basically fuzzed them out and rounded off the edges, and they looked softer and more realistic and less blocky on the displays of the era. So it's a weird thing to think about that, you know, we look at this the, the pixel art now, the perler art, all these things, and then realize that, yeah, I mean, years and years ago, these looked different. Yeah, and it's just very strange to kind of see how uh, things advanced. And like we were talking about with Goldeneye, it's like, oh, man, that was the epitome of graphical yeah. beauty back in the day. And then, like I said, my daughter looking at it like, what the hell are we looking at? Yeah, we've got a head that's made out of six polygons and an incredibly blurry face texture built on a uh, a two megapixel photo that was taken from twenty feet away by of the the actor or actors who played the character. It's it's yeah. funny how you know. I remember at one point looking at a. Uh, I was never a big sports fan, but I had friends who were, and one of the other couch co op games was uh, the MLB games on the PlayStation. And uh, they they rendered all the stadiums as accurately as they could, and they they got likenesses rights to the the players and did all that. And I remember thinking to myself, man, how much better could games look? And this is like late nineties, oh, if that. Yeah, and and every generation we're like, holy shit, this is it. This is what they look like yeah. now. This is amazing. And no, and, and apparently the way that we get there is through these graphical tricks and little gamifications of the system and people being on the cutting edge of how to manipulate these polygons into doing what they want to do. Whether it's using flat planes for a three dimensional surface or uh, using different tricks to move you from point A to point B, but it looks seamless. I mean, they've been doing it since the beginning of video games. And it's really cool to see as they adapt and evolve and, and transform what they do. And that's kind of why we wanted to talk about this whole thing is because I find it utterly fascinating, all of these tips and tricks and, and little tips of the system and how they become what they become and how we get what we get with video games. Because, I mean... I'm always in awe and in love with how they do and deliver the things that they do. And with every hardware generation we get, it gets better and better. Uh, the graphics on some of these are better than the graphics you see in the movies. <coughs> yeah, man. <clears throat> but, uh, did, was that too subtle? Did you catch that? <sighs> Cough, Modoc. <clears throat> But, but the thing is, they're always going to be developing new tips and tricks to bring us the latest and greatest. There's always going to be new uh, technology and new uh, methods of making these games more and more interactive and realistic. And and I am here for it. I, I love to study these things. I love to Same. learn about these things. I mean, I'm far too stupid to understand how to make it work myself. Jesus, I couldn't come up with this if you threw me in a boat and made me but uh yeah. it's really cool to see how it happens it's really unique and so uh let us know uh what you guys think what video games employed a trick of the trade that surprised you whether it was mario bushes floating in the sky or you know old train head and fallout what is it that you uh, <laughs> uh noticed with a video game a trip that you noticed that just kind of uh, help set the stage and help bring you more and, and more immersive into the video game. Let us know. You can hit us up on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash feelyourfandom. Throw us an email at uh, feelyourfandom at gmail.com. Or FYFTalentBooking at gmail.com or on Twitter at fuel underscore your Instagram at, at feelyourfandom or any place you find podcasts uh, that you can plug into your ear holes. We're going to be there. 
Absolutely. And so uh, you don't have to tell us uh, which trick you like. Just tell us which old school video games you like. Start a conversation. That's what this whole thing is about. It's starting a conversation. And like I told Jim and I told you guys many times, I could talk about video games until I'm blue in the face because that's what I do. It's what I love. Um, it's just something that I, gets me going. It fires me up. And so uh, send us uh, an email. Tell us what your favorite video game is. Tell us uh, uh, anything. Just interact with us. We want to talk with you. We want to be a part of your lives. And we're happy that you make us a part of your lives. So from Jim and I, I want to say thank you for being a part of the Fury Fandom Podcast. Uh, and please do remember that everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care. Snozzberries taste like snozzberries. Penis.